research has shown that students who are from diverse backgrounds, uh, who have historically underperformed, uh, you know, in the kind of formal learning environment, much of that is attributed to the fact that their education doesn't value, has a deficit view of who they are in terms of their culture and their identity and their language. And CRP is a way to uh, recognize these aspects of their identity and affirm them and integrate them into their learning. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas, this is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. I've been admiring the work and expertise of Monique Coleman by following her on Twitter and more. As an adjunct professor and an educator in our field for over 20 years, she skillfully integrates her personal experiences into instruction through CRP, or Culturally Responsive Pedagogy. Knowing the consideration of diversity, equity, and inclusion is vital within instruction. It's a no-brainer that we want to have Monique on our show. Hello? Hey, uh, Monique, this is Emily. Oh, good. Hi. I was just sitting down to the computer to see where I'm supposed to log in here. I was going to look for the link. Well, we'll go ahead and get started and we'll just go through the questions. And then if we end up on any tangents, that's always fine, too. All right. So uh, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself and then tell us about your background? I am a longtime educator. I've been a TVI for 21 years, and prior to that, I was an early childhood teacher, predominantly serving uh, Black and Brown children and families in New York school, uh, New York City, like preschool and Head Start centers. Uh, and I learned about the field of blindness and low vision education when I was in grad school at Teachers College. I knew nothing about this field before, um, but I, you know, kind of fell in love with it. And that was a spark that got me on the path to becoming TBI. So, you know, I'd already decided kind of to that I wanted to dedicate my career to working with uh, underserved youth. So it really wasn't difficult for me to make the transition from, uh, you know, the general urban education field to our lovely low-incidence disability population. Um, I'm also a lifelong learner, I should say. I'm currently in the process of completing my doctorate in education, and my dissertation is focused on the perspectives and experiences of Black and Latino families of blind students. So, uh, yeah, doing a lot at the moment. On the home front, I've raised three boys who are now young men. Uh, so without shame, I often wear kind of my motherly hat when I'm working with students. <laughs> and, uh, you know, can't get around that after having raised three of your own children. And fun fact is I've never been to Texas. I thought about this, um, you know, when I before we sat down for this or for this podcast interview that I've never been to Texas. Uh, but when I do get there, definitely TSBBI is going to be kind of the top destination for me. Uh, Cause I, I really admire the work that you guys do. Man, we'd love to have you come visit. Just let me know. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. So where are you uh, getting, working on your doctorate? Who are you going through? Yeah, so I'm at Rutgers uh, University, and their Graduate School of Education does not have a program specifically in uh, blindness and low vision ed, uh, but I'm in the uh, program that looks 
more at uh, sociocultural issues in education. Uh, so it gives me the flexibility to, again, do research in our field, but through more of a sociocultural lens and looking at issues of equity and access and inclusion um, within our disability field. And we uh, we had talked a little bit before, and you mentioned that you do some adjunct teaching with San Francisco State. Do you do that with other universities as well? No, just San Francisco State. Uh, so yes, I know all the way across the country, but I do all that work remotely, and I teach uh, this semester I taught a, because uh, it's ending now, a, a methods course. I actually co-taught it with uh, Ting uh, Sue, who I'm sure you know very well. Um, that was a lot of fun, co-teaching with her and just kind of drawing on both of our knowledge bases and, and doing what, the best that we could, I think, to teach and, and learn and grow with uh, these pre-service uh, personnel uh, that we had in our class. And I feel like the SFSU program is so robust and so, um, I think, intimately aware of and in tune with all of the technological advancements and changes and uh, really takes a 21st century approach to, you know, preparing professionals in our field. And I really like that about this particular uh, program. Not to say that others don't, but this is my experience. Right. Well, I, you know, I kind of caught your name by following some of the other university programs and, and um, you were always getting some shout outs on Twitter, which is great. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then I read an article you wrote for Pass to Literacy, which was titled Culturally Responsive Literacy Education with Learners Who Are Blind or Visually Impaired, mm -hmm. um, and which is why I really wanted to talk to you. So I'm, I'm curious, what inspired you to write on this topic specifically? Yeah, so uh, first, thank you for recognizing my work and uh, raising this question. I was asked to write that article on CRP for past literacy by the previous coordinator of the site who knew about a presentation that I did on this topic uh, way back in, well, I say way back in 2019, uh, to getting in touch with literacy um, and while I feel like my session topic was certainly not among the most popular at the conference, there were a number of folks who approached me uh, who expressed an interest in this topic and wanted to know how to better support uh, their diverse student population. Uh, but, you know, the inspiration actually for my work around CRP uh, in our field is really rooted in my own personal history and my own professional experiences you know, I'm in I'm in elementary in elementary school. I should say I was a product of you know forced bus schooling, right, for desegregation. So mm -hmm. I was shipped across town to a um, you know whiter and wealthier uh, part of the community, and I sat in classrooms where I was one of one of or a few or sometimes the only um, you know black kid in class. You know, I witnessed some of the educational inequities that I now understand as an adult and as an educator. Uh, and uh, are widely recognized in education. And I found that, uh, you know, as we all know, uh, our population of blind and low vision students are, you know, they reflect the increasing racial and ethnic diversity in our society, right? It's very evident in states like Texas, where you are, and certainly where I am in New Jersey, New York, and all over the country. Uh, and according to the you know, data from the Department of Education, uh, the 2019 or 2018-19 school year, nearly half of blind and visually impaired students uh, ages 3 to 21 were children of color. So, you know, and that trend continues to, you know, kind of trend upwards in terms of diversity. 
So I believe that it's important that curriculum instruction re- uh, practices in our field, you know, are responsive, intentionally responsive to this increasingly diverse population. So, and this really means actually, although this that article was focused on literacy, I'm really talking about all aspects of our work, right? From the assessment process to design of curriculum and pedagogy and to the actual instruction um, in areas of the expanded core, which obviously is where we focus much of our work. Uh, but it's very important that we validate the, the the cultural and linguistic strengths of students who are blind and visually impaired and who are non-white, who may be emergent bilinguals, um, who may be from poor and, and low-income um, families, uh, who kind of don't represent the um, you know, kind of dominant um, middle-class white mainstream uh, that we, that we, that is uh, kind of centered in our educational institutions. So I wrote that piece because I knew that we weren't giving enough, and when I say we, I'm talking about generally speaking, our field of education was not giving enough attention, I believe, to the importance of uh, developing curriculum instruction that truly is responsive to our diverse population. And it's important that we, you know, really start to make that hard, uh, hard and intentional efforts to do that so that we can better serve these students and, and, and see that they can achieve better outcomes. It's very important that there is that we think about the synergy that we need uh, to bridging uh, all these aspects of our students' identity and to uh, how we teach them, uh, how we uh, build relationships with them. And this is not unusual for, uh, especially in the field of, of special education, for, again, educators to not necessarily think about how best to go beyond just acknowledging their diversity to truly validating who their, who their students are and all their identities and bringing that into the instructional space. Um, and so I, I just... And I think the reason why I think this is so important um, for us in particular, which again is not very different from the broader general and special ed- education population, uh, and that's because when we're not um, kind of working on bridging cultural gaps and divides between, let's say, educators and, and students um, who are from diverse backgrounds, uh, we are <coughs> doing a uh, we're not we're underserving sort of the students and, and because we're not really teaching to their authentic selves. And research research has shown that uh, students who are from diverse backgrounds, uh, who have historically underperformed, uh, you know, in the kind of formal learning environment, much of that is attributed to uh, the fact that their education uh, is certainly not doubt doesn't value has a deficit view of who they are in terms of their culture and their identity and their language and CRP is a way to uh, recognize these aspects of their identity and affirm them and again um, integrate them into their learning. Now uh, we've mentioned uh, culturally responsive pedagogy a few times or CRP. And I'm wondering if there's, um, I, I'm not sure everybody is familiar with that term. Um, and I'm wondering if you could define it or if there was a way that you defined it to sort of explain how it's put into practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah, how do we define it? So first of all, there are 
several terms that are used similar to culturally responsive pedagogy. Some may heard, some may have heard of culturally relevant pedagogy, cultural sustaining pedagogy. All of these terms are really part of a long tradition of asset-based um, pedagogies, which emerged uh, in the 90s, actually, in response to uh, what I just spoke on, which is uh, the what we know is has been the historic underperformance of culturally and linguistically diverse students uh, and the dominant kind of deficit approaches to teaching these students and interacting with their families. So CRP um, compels educators to tap into the linguistic, cultural, and literacy resources and practices of uh, Black and Brown students, and particularly Dr. Glory Ladson Billings, who coined the term culturally relevant pedagogy in 1995, um, based on research that she was doing at the time with successful teachers of African American students, defined CRP as an approach to teaching that, quote, empowers all students intellectually, socially, emotionally and politically by using cultural reference to impart knowledge and skills. So that's an attitude. And that's sort of the kind of the, the uh, launch pad that I use when thinking about culturally relevant or responsive or sustaining pedagogy. Uh, her, Dr. Gloria Latson Billings framework was um, truly a land, it's truly a landmark in uh, in this field in terms of those of us who, who align ourselves with CRP. Uh, and her emphasis was really straightforward. It's good teaching. And I think there's so much, again, synergy between the framework of CRP and what we attempt to do as educators in the field of special education. Her emphasis or her th were on three tenets. One is um, student learning and achievement. This may seem obvious, like, of course, educators should be focused on student learning and achievement, right? But what this tenet is reminding us is that for too long, Many students have experienced lower expectations, right? Less quality education. Um, and so CRP reminds us that educational success uh, for all students, regardless of their background, um, needs to be our goal. And that does require the kind of individualization of uh, the learning environment around our students' identities. Um, the second tenet of CRP talks about building students' cultural competence. And again, this is another area that I think often is easy to get lost if in our field, even for educators who uh, who do who are aware of CRP, because we're so focused on the disability um, area and how to build our how to work on non-visual learning techniques or low vision learning techniques. But here, we also want to think about how can we celebrate and appreciate our students' culture. Uh, and and give them the wings to feel like they can appreciate and celebrate who they are in the classroom while also gaining a knowledge of and fluency of other cultures. We live in a pluralistic society, obviously, right? So our classrooms are comprised of students from different cultures. And I think it's very important that we uh, build in that recognition and that will better prepare our students for kind of the global society that they're going to be, um, that they are already in and certainly will be growing as adults into. And then the third uh, tenet of CRP is 
is focused on building students' uh, critical or sociopolitical consciousness. A really big term, but this just means facilitating students' understanding of social issues in their communities and larger society. And again, this is an area that I think a lot about in terms of synergy with our field of, of, of blindness and low vision ed. Uh, and I think this relates to the kind of awareness building that we we need to be doing, and that I know many of us do around self-determination, right, and recognizing um, issues related to in unequal access, um, issues around inclusion, and how we want our students to learn about how to advocate uh, around these issues. And so all of these, you know, CRP, these three CRP tenants, I think really fit nicely into the work that we do uh, with our students. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that we can, I could go on and on to try to explain <laughs> CRP, but I think in a nutshell, that's, you know, how, how we should think about it. And I will just add that, um, there, again, this is, uh, CSP, CRP is really a continuum. It's a family of pedagogy, so you'll hear different terms. Most recently, a new term was co was coined uh, called uh, culturally sustaining pedagogy, and, and Dr. Gloria Latson-Billings refers that refers to that as CRP 2.0, and that just, again, extending this theory and, and this framework, I should say, and, and, and CSP emphasizes the importance of not only um, integrating students' cultures and, and language and literacy practices into the learning environment, but also um, helping students to sustain who they are. So in other words, saying, you know, who you are, uh, your language and your culture and your literacy practices, we are here to help you um, to deepen those to deepen those cultural aspects of who you are. We're not here to just um, figure out a way to use them to teach you, but also to help you grow in who you are, right? Just as you are. And I think that sounds really kind of fuzzy and hmm, I don't really get that, but it's, it's, it, you can think about it like this. When we have students who are, you know, again, a blind learner who may have some non-visual tech, uh, have acquired their own and developed their own sort of non-visual ways of doing things. And they bring that into the classroom and our role as uh, 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 teachers or, or specialists in our field is to not find, try to get them to do things another way, right? Yeah. But it's to really say, you know, the way you're doing this is, is what works for you. And it's what you've learned, what you um, have developed at home that you're now bringing into the classroom. And we want to support you in that, right? We want to see you build and, and um, develop uh, through what you already bring to the classroom. And that's essentially what we're saying, you know, what assets and skills and knowledge, knowledge based bases do our students already have? What do they already bring to the table based on their culture? And how do we help them continue to grow in the, in those ways? Well, and it, it goes back to, you know, um, talking about the relationship to empowering students as well, which is something that we always want to do. But, um, you know, but I can't think of a better way than affirming uh, a part of themselves that they've already figured out or a skill yeah. that they have utilized and affirming, hey, that's great. I'm, you know, instead of trying to say, oh, that's wrong. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and the and the key here is that again, oftentimes, unfortunately, 
when we're talking about students from diverse backgrounds who bring in cultural practices or maybe language practices, maybe they use, I have students who use what um, is referred to as black English or black language, Ebonics. And we see that and educators often see that as, well, no, that's, there's something wrong with that, right? You can't use that language in school. When actually, if you talk to any linguist, this is not disputed. Um, this language variety is, is just that it's an actual a variety of English language. It's not a substandard way of talking. It's not slang. Um, so then how do we uh, recognize and affirm that part of our students, um, who they are, so that we can help them continue to develop uh, academically or in whatever way they are, um, in whatever kind of learning space they're in, through the use of their own language, right? Not like they have to Yes, we want them to acquire, um, quote unquote, standard English or mainstream English skills, but we also want to do that in a way that respects and values what they already have, right? So they don't have to feel like they have to leave part of who they are at the door. And, I, and again, speaking to my own personal experience, I, I felt like I had to do that many times uh, growing up. And that's, it's not a comfortable place to be as a student mm -hmm. and learner. You know, for for our students, so much of what we do is built on their disability. And um, do you think that makes it harder for our students to learn about and build cultural awareness? Uh, maybe mm -hmm. there aren't as many opportunities or we're just all so focused on the fact that they're blind. Yeah, I think it can definitely. Well, I think it can be hard for students from diverse backgrounds to first of all, kind of talk about aspects of their identity that are unacknowledged in the classroom, right? Because it's they're not being discussed and they don't want to sort of, they may not feel comfortable, right? Bringing um, mm -hmm. up a discussion about uh, a part of themselves that isn't even acknowledged in the classroom, yeah. um, right? And is, or worse yet, that they, they see signs of uh, being less valued in the classroom, as in the case that I just gave you about uh, someone who speaks an uh, English language variety or who's, um, you know, again, whose home language does not reflect sort of standard mainstream English. So when one identity marker seems to be um, recognized, um, that can impact a student's comfort and confidence level when discussing other stigmatizing um, and no less important aspects of their identity. So that's why it's important for us as educators to think about how do we recognize um, our students in their as their whole selves so that they can develop um, a level of comfort and, and confidence in, in, terms of, in, in terms of thinking about who they are in the learning environment uh, so that they are comfortable with th these aspects of their identity. So, yeah, this singular <laughs> focus on disability is certainly something that I think uh, we need to be thinking seriously about as educators. And it's difficult. It's not easy because that's not what we learn, right? Our professional mm -hmm. preparation programs don't really teach us how to do this. Um, and so I think in my piece, I talked about um, the importance of relationship building, doing cultural inventories of our students and families uh, so that we can better learn about who they are outside of the classroom, outside of their disability, um, that, you know, that family unit that they function in um, culturally that may be different from, uh, you know, what we value and experience in the classroom. You know, that's an important starting point. Yeah, it's, you know, we talk a lot about uh, how a student really, you can't really be successful working with a student until you build those relationships. And this is such yeah. an important piece of that. 
It really is. And yeah, and it's a piece that often, unfortunately, gets left out, right? But it is important because culture is, so much of culture is unstated, right? Unconscious. It's, but culture is central to who we are as beings, what we think, um, certainly how we teach and learn, um, and how we talk, uh, the way we think about the world, the way we process information, so much of who we are is culturally grounded. And of course, culture is dynamic and fluid and there's, um, there's nothing static about culture. We certainly can't stereotype our students, right. Or make assumptions about their culture just because of the country that their family may be from or their, you know, racial or ethnic background. Uh, because of course there's going to be differences based on, um, factors like um, where they live in the country, you know, socioeconomic status, um, you know, their acculturation. If we're talking about an immigrant family, how long have they been in the country and how much have they acculturated to sort of the American um, uh, mainstream? So there are, there's a lot of complexity there as well, and which I think is another reason why it can be difficult for educators to sort of pinpoint and understand the ways in which culture uh, does shape and influence uh, their students and, and their own work. Uh, so really being thoughtful and reflective and understanding the role of culture is, is an important starting point. Self-reflection is definitely a cornerstone of CRP. And as I said, we typically don't give our conscious to our own culture because we typically don't have to think about it, right? We're, we just do it, it's who we are. Um, so cultural self-reflection is uh, what many have called uh, the process of making the familiar strange, right? It's mm -hmm. getting in touch with our own culture. Um, and doing this will allow us to recognize the ways in which our own beliefs and values and expectations impact the way we communicate and teach and the expectations we have around learning. Um, and the goal of reflecting practice is to really challenge uh, our assumptions, you know, of, and our beliefs and practices so that we can be better able to engage in new and different practices that better support all of our students. And in doing so, we'll, we're also working towards more equitable opportunities and outcomes for our students. Um, so, you know, again, it's just important to recognize that all teachers and students have multiple intersecting identities and they're socially constructed over time, and, but it, and it influences the classroom in so many ways. I think it's important to also recognize that uh, reflective practice requires us to consider our positionality in relationship to uh, students who come from diverse backgrounds and their families. And that, and I'm talking particularly about power differentials, right? Power and privilege in the classroom. So for educators in our field who are overwhelmingly middle-class and white women, it's important to be cognizant of the cultural gaps and, and related power hierarchies that impact our partnerships with diverse families, right? So we're, we're professionals. We have um, technical knowledge and coupled with the cultural background that reflects kind of the mainstream norms. Um, this comes, this affords a power, a position power over students and families who uh, come from diverse backgrounds. And one must really reflect on uh, this power differential in order to neutralize it, right? And to build effective relations with parents. And I firmly believe and many others who practice CRP that uh, and other asset-based ped pedagogies that providing asset-based instruction that starts with 
um, the students' cultural strengths is the way to break through those barriers and be more effective in our work with students and certainly with their families. So one researcher calls um, this idea of calls a, the idea of cultural wealth as uh, an array of knowledge and skills and abilities that our students and families have based on their cultural um, backgrounds that often go acknowledged. How do we tap into that? That's what, you know, that's what's at the heart of cultural responsive pedagogy. And uh, we have to think about how to do that, starting with first tapping into our own so that we can recognize others, right? Yeah. Do you have like some examples you can share about how to incorporate, I, I love that term, cultural wealth, like how to, how to work that into teaching literacy to our students? Yeah. Um, so I think in the article, I, one of my former students that I really like to talk about um, because he came such a long way, um, one of the key ways that I like to start with tapping into students' cultural wealth is to take an inventory, as I mentioned, um, a family inventory, and it doesn't have to be, I'm going to sit down and interview you now, parent, but it is through the process of, uh, you know, relationship building over time, right? Observing family home, observing the student and their family, doing home visits. Um, I, I really think that we have to find ways to, even in with um, middle school students, high school students, finding ways to be um, build relationships with families to do, as I said, to do home visits. We often think about that being an early intervention, right? Early childhood practice, but I don't think it should stop there because there's so much information we can glean from that. So with this particular student, um, when I got him, he was a high schooler and he was struggling with reading, um, basically not having any success with literacy and low vision student with multiple disabilities. And he was from an immigrant working class family. Early in his education, he had um, you know, he was developing his English skills. We call that emergent bilingual. And he also had, uh, you know, really limited uh, cognitive um, um, uh, abilities from what his educational records showed, right? And so when I started working with him as a high schooler, I said, you know, I really have to tap into his interests. I need to find out about, again, what his, his family practices so that somehow we can make learning in, the, in school more meaningful for him. And I got to know his family. It took me a little time. But I started to realize that the profound like learning and communication deficits that he was having in school didn't really reflect his true potential and what I saw uh, in his in his home context, right? So it was clear to me that he just needed to have some different learning opportunities. And it, we began an intensive Braille literacy program, grounded in his interests, we did a lot of um, uh, personal narratives. I found out about uh, family events and gatherings that they would have and the role that he played in terms of doing um, pick, taking pictures at some of the family events. And through learning about these opportunities and writing stories together about them, he started developing all these wonderful literacy skills. Mm. And 
one of the really fun projects we did was that he started to do, he did a few interviews with family members and he did the interviews um, uh, in, in Portuguese. And so it was really cool because he recorded the interviews with his Portuguese speaking family members. And then him and I sat down, listened to his recordings and worked on creating a transcript of these interviews in English. And so that reinforced his you know, literacy learning, his technology skills, his typing the interviews, and it also reinforced um, and validated his, the, his, his, his family's culture, right, and, and their language, and how I really wanted him to see that we can merge both of these worlds, right, that there didn't have to be this stark line of demarcation between um, what happens in his home and his family and what happens in school. Yeah. And um, it yeah. And it was really great to see the progress that he made. We even did things like for um, using social media, you know, and using in his case, he was uh, on Instagram taking he would take pictures. And I'm like, well, you know, you need to make your pictures accessible because they get very family oriented. And so they had family gatherings and take these pictures. And I said, well, let's work on some creating some captions and um, text descriptions for these pictures. And, you know, and through these. Um, high interest and culturally relevant practices, we were working on so many important literacy and technology skills. So for folks uh, listening, including myself, <laughs> what, are, <laughs> what are your favorite resources um, to uh, embrace CRP and to continue empowering students in this way? It's mm-hmm. a good question. So because our field really doesn't have any great resources on CRP right now. Um, It is important that we are reaching outside of our field, right? And so I think that's another thing that we don't do often do so well. And I'm speaking generally, not, you know, trying to necessarily paint a broad brush, but I think as a field, uh, just sort of having some more of an interdisciplinary approach, I think, to this work is going to be essential because we just don't have enough research. Uh, so some of the folks that I like to read and learn from, again, Gloria Latson Billings, who just actually published a, a new book. And uh, let me look up. It's called Culturally Relevant Pedagogy, Asking a Different Question. And this book is a part of a series on culturally sustaining pedagogies. And what she does in this book is she, um, you know, really compiles all of her work over the years in culturally relevant pedagogy and some of the prominent essays that she's done and assuming updated and added to many of them. And I think that's a great, that would be a great resource for those who are kind of just getting started and wanting to learn more. Uh, And then, you know, I do have to put in a plug for you know, looking at that article I read, because it helps to now take the knowledge you uh, learn from uh, Gloria Latson Billings and others doing the work outside of our field, right, figure out how do I tie that into the work as uh, our work as a TBI or an O&M or assistive tech, you know, trainer, whatever our roles are, administrator, how do we tie in these concepts to our particular field? I think that's important for me to bridge, right? So I'm trying to put that bridge out there through writing and presentations and certainly through the work that we do with our students at CFSU. Um, but yeah, it's hope, hopefully we're going to start to see the tide really change and we'll start to develop our own um, knowledge base on this practice with uh, with our students. And so there, yeah, there's some promising um, practices that are, I think, being our research, I should say, that that's coming up the pike. Um, I'm 
I wrote a, a research paper on culturally diverse Braille books um, and, well, the lack thereof, cultural diversity in Braille books, and that's soon to be published in the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness. Also have another article coming out specifically on culturally sustaining practices with uh, blind and deafblind and deaf and hard of hearing students. So, you know, that's on the horizon. Uh, so, yeah, there's soon to be more resources out there. And I hope that people, uh, you know, listening do think and ask more questions and go out and find some more resources to, yeah, to advance CRP and culturally responsive and culturally relevant work in our field. So again, just what you're doing, I appreciate it. And I really think it's important that we have more and more conversations about this. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. I don't believe we do anything more important in our work than validating the multiple identities of our students. Monique's explanation of CRP and the other terms that define it provide tangible concepts we can use to be better teachers. By making sure our students are represented in their education, we're empowering them to succeed. From TSBVI Outreach and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.